The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, by whose providence your servant John the Baptist was wonderfully born and sent to prepare the way for your Son, our Savior, by preaching repentance, make us so to follow his teaching and holy life that we may truly repent according to his preaching and following his example, constantly speak the truth, boldly rebuke vice, and patiently suffer for the truth's sake. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. That's the colic for June the 24th, which is the day we celebrate the nativity, the birth of St. John the Baptist. And it seemed to be an appropriate text for today because it is the ministry of John that we are going to look at in some detail. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Matthew chapter 3. And we'll go ahead and read through the entire chapter. It's a relatively brief chapter. Um, let me say, incidentally, that if you weren't here last week, and I know that some of you decided not to brave the weather um, because it was a little uncertain, a little sketchy last week, Florence tells me that she made copies of last week's CD or last week's class, and they are back there. See, like Vanna White back there, she is, uh, holding them up. And uh, they can be yours for a special price. Um, like Grace, they are free. So you can go ahead and get a copy of those if you're interested. Incidentally, all of the classes are also online, and many of you asked the question, well, can we get copies of the slides? The slides are also online. So if you um, are having a hard time jotting things down at the pace that I'm moving, uh, you can go ahead and get copies of those. They will be online for you. So Matthew chapter 3, let's go ahead and read through this chapter. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Here's somebody else is out there reading the same text, uh, and next time I'll read it in an English accent. That'll make it better. One of the unique features of the Gospels is that we know um, from what they indicate that Jesus lived on this planet for approximately 33 years. Now by our standards, that's not a particularly long life. Of course, you have to remember that the average lifespan of somebody in the first century was considerably shorter than it is today. Um, we live much longer than people in most previous generations did. And so it's... Uh, not surprising then that Jesus' life was relatively brief, even by the standards of his own day. 
And yet what's odd is that here in Matthew, but also in the other Gospels, the other two synoptics, Mark and Luke, but also in John, what we discover is that the Gospel writers nevertheless only concentrate on an even briefer period in Jesus' life. Uh, He walked on this planet for 33 years, but the Gospels, for the most part, concentrate on just three of those, the years that Jesus was active in ministry. And for the greater part of His life on the planet, the Gospels are absolutely silent. There is nothing. Uh, There is one minor exception to this. You're probably familiar with it. In Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52, the story is told of how Mary and Joseph had gone up to Jerusalem on one occasion when Jesus was about 12 years of age, and they inadvertently left him behind. So that's an encouragement, ladies and gentlemen. If you've ever thought you've messed up your kids by the way you've raised them, be encouraged. Even Mary and Joseph messed up from time to time. Obviously, leaving your child behind in another city is pretty serious. And that is exactly what they did. I don't know if you've ever seen the holiday film Home Alone. Well, this is, this is what it's based on, really. Um, Mary and Joseph go up to Jerusalem and they leave Jesus behind. Now, of course, you have to remember that they were probably traveling with a large caravan, an extended family, and somebody no doubt thought that Jesus was with somebody else. Uh, but the reality was he was left behind and we're told that he went up to the temple And there he instructed the teachers of the law. And when they went back to find him, you can just imagine how frantic Mary and Joseph would have been. And they said, you know, what are you doing? And the little boy responds, where would you think I would be? I'm in my father's house and I'm about my father's business. And we're told that the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were absolutely amazed by this boy's knowledge of the scriptures and the authority with which he spoke. So it's a wonderful story. But aside from that story, there is no reference anywhere in the Gospels to the first 30 years or so of Jesus' life. It's almost as though we we end with the story here in Matthew chapter 2 of the flight to Egypt and Mary and Joseph returning and going to Nazareth. And then it's as though Matthew takes and hits the fast forward button and goes 30 years into the future where we pick up the narrative today which says, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and Jesus came to be baptized by John. And you have to ask yourself, well, what in the world was Jesus doing for 30 years? Why doesn't the Gospels make reference to this? Why are they silent on this whole period of Jesus' life? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. What I think we can say safely is what Jesus was doing in those first 30 years of his life was... He was being human. That's the great mystery. That's the miracle of Christmas. The miracle of Christmas is that God came down and walked among us. The miracle of Christmas is that the Word, the Logos, by whom all things were made, everything that you see, every planet, every leaf, every system, every atom, every molecule, It was all created by God, by the sheer power of His Word. And that one who created all things at one point in history came down and took on human flesh. I had a conversation with somebody just hours before I came here to teach this class. Somebody had called me up. He was a friend, and he had a a theological question for me. And his question was, is there any request that we make of God that is too mundane? You know, sometimes when we offer up our prayers to God, we think, well, there are just some things I shouldn't ask God for. I mean, God obviously is concerned with more serious matters than my petty little problems. Isn't that what we sometimes think? I mean, God is concerned with the rolling of the planets in in the skies and the heavens, and and He's concerned with world peace, and He's concerned with things like that. He's not concerned with my petty little problems. And that's what this person was struggling with. And I said, for a God who became man, for a God who took on human flesh, and the Greek word there is sarx, it means literal flesh, flesh and blood. It's what we got up with this morning. It's what I say some of us shaved this morning. It's, It's what we washed this morning. For a God who took that on, 
There is no request, there is no concern, there is no problem that you have that is too mundane that God does not want to hear it. That's the great message of the Incarnation. That is the great message of Christmas, that God became one of us. And what was He doing during these silent years from the time of His birth until the time of the beginning or the inauguration of His ministry? Jesus was being human. One of the things we're told was that He was said in the context of a family. And I suspect that He was learning all the blessings and all of the challenges of family life. And those two things are often mixed together. We've all had families. And some of those families are wonderful, and some of those families aren't so wonderful. And sometimes, most families are a mixture of the two. Isn't that true? Now, now we may want to put up the facade. My wife says it's hanging apples on the tree. You know, when the apples are not on the tree, but people are coming. You want apples on the tree. You go out and you tie apples on the tree. That's what she says we sometimes do in life. We hang apples on the tree so that everything looks ideal. This is one of the reasons I've always said Norman Rockwell is so popular. You ever see Norman Rockwell's Thanksgiving dinner painting? Oh, that is beautiful. How many of you have ever had a Thanksgiving like that? Be honest. Some people do, but a lot of people don't. When I was growing up, inevitably, any kind of family get-together like that turned out to be some discussion about politics. And there were always people on opposite sides of the aisle. And it didn't look anything like Norman Rockwell by the time it was all over with. What was Jesus doing during those years? The same thing you and I were doing. He was learning the blessings of family life, what it means to live in community, but he was also learning the challenges of living in community, the difficulty of being in a family. Another thing that Jesus was doing was the very thing that you and I do. He was earning a living. He was learning a trade. He was working for Joseph in that carpenter shop for 30 years. We could presume that's what he was doing. That's what he learned to do. He was making a living. I mean, he may have been the son of God, the son of the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, but the reality was Jesus was not born into wealth. He was born in great poverty. He was just a poor man. Later on in life, he even said, birds of the air have nests, foxes have dens. He said, but the son of man does not even have a place to lay his head. What was Jesus doing during these years? He was working and let me tell you something, no vacations in the first century. And there was no retirement in the first century. In fact, you can go ahead and look through the Bible, and I have done so. And you will not find any reference from the book of Genesis the whole way through to the book of Revelation that makes any reference whatsoever of retirement. So let that be a lesson to you. There is no retirement from the Christian life. There may be retirement from the bank or from the law office, maybe sometimes even from ministry, but not from the vocation, not from the calling as a Christian. What was Jesus doing? Well, he was working, and it was hard work. Jesus was doing manual labor. This was not a white-collar job. This was a blue-collar job. He was learning obedience in the lesser tasks. I think we can assume that Jesus was obedient. We're told that he was like us in every way except for one. He never sinned. Well, what that means is that Jesus kept the fifth commandment. You know what the fifth commandment is? Oh. Honor thy father and thy mother. I presume that Jesus, even though he was the Lord of all, even though he had all authority in heaven and on earth granted to him, what was he doing? Well, as a young boy, he was being obedient. He was learning obedience in the lesser things of life so that he could be obedient in the greater things in life. So even though the Gospels don't tell us exactly what Jesus was doing, we can assume that Jesus was doing the very things that you and I were called to do. Dorothy Sayers, who was a friend of C.S. Lewis and sort of a non-official member of that group known as the Inklings. She wasn't an official member because they were all men. 
but if one woman could have gotten in, it would have been Dorothy Sayer. She was very close to Lewis and to others. She was a writer of mystery novels, and she was a brilliant scholar. She was an Oxford graduate. She said this. It's my favorite quote from Dorothy Sayers, and I think it's very insightful. She was talking actually about the fact that human beings suffer and the mystery of suffering. But the whole mystery of suffering is caught up in what we're talking about here, in the mystery of Jesus taking on human flesh, of truly being human. Here's what she writes. She says, for whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death. You know, that's true, isn't it? Life, as I said, is a mixture of blessings and pain. Jesus himself said that in this life you will what? You will have tribulation. He didn't say you may have tribulation. He didn't say it's likely you're going to have tribulation. What did he say? He said you will have it. He was emphatic. A couple of weeks ago when I preached on Sunday morning, I said that every single one of us is in one of three places, no matter who you are. You're either in a storm in your life right now, or you've just come out of a storm, or you're heading into a storm. But none of us, not a single one of us, if we're human beings, escapes the storms of life. The book of Job says man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. So Dorothy Sayers acknowledges the fact that for whatever reason, and we don't know the reason, but God chose to make mankind as we are, chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death. But she goes on to say this, and this is the critical part. She said, but at least God, the Christian God, had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game God is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. For God can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He was himself one who went through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life. And let's face it, sometimes family life can be irritating. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and the lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When God became a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty, and he died in disgrace, and he thought it well worthwhile. What was Jesus doing those 30 years? He was being human. And that's one of the reasons why you and I can go with confidence before him. That's one of the things that the author of Hebrews says, you and I have a great high priest. That's the gospel lesson for this Sunday, incidentally. You and I have a great high priest. Now, you know what a priest is, don't you? A priest is one who offers sacrifice on behalf of others. A priest is one who speaks to God on behalf of others. That's what a priest is supposed to do. And that was particularly true in the Old Testament context. The priest went into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement and spoke to a holy and righteous God on behalf of a sinful and fallen people. That's what a priest does. He makes intercession. But we have a great high priest. And why is he a great high priest? Because he not only makes a sacrifice, he is the sacrifice. He is the full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. So he is both priest and victim. That makes him the great high priest. But the author of Hebrews goes on to say something else about him being the great high priest. One of the things that makes him great, particularly for us, is that he has been tempted in every way just as we are, and yet did not sin. There's nothing you've ever faced. There's nothing that you've never feared. There's nothing that you've ever doubted about that Christ has not already been through it and he's already understood it. That's one of the reasons why you and I, we say it every Sunday in the liturgy, boldly go before the throne of grace and say, Our Father. 
because we're going boldly into the presence of one who understands what we're going through. If you're struggling today, Christ understands that. If you're lonely today, He understands that. If you've been betrayed by someone close to you, He understands that. If people have uttered all kinds of falsehood against you, He understands that. If you're in physical pain today, He understands that. If you're in danger of financial ruin, He understands that. And if you are facing the prospect of your own mortality and the prospect of your own death, He understands that. And if you're hoping that there's another way to avoid that, He understands that too. If this cup can pass, may it be, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. This is the distinguishing characteristic of Christianity. You you need to understand there's no other religion in the world like that. Of a God who comes down and suffers. This is one of the reasons why the New Testament says the message of the cross is foolishness to some. The Greeks could not imagine a God who would come down and take on human flesh. Oh, they had stories of gods who would sometimes masquerade as human beings in order to trick people, but they could not understand a suffering deity, a God who would come down and literally take on human flesh and walk among us and offer himself up as an atoning sacrifice for the guilty when he was innocent. They could not understand it. It was absolute folly, foolishness. And to the Jews, it was the stumbling block. But to us, you see, it is our only hope. So whatever you're struggling with today, you can take it to the Lord and He understands. That's why Jesus was able to say, Come unto me, all you that travail and are heavy laden. You ever felt that way in your life? How many of you have ever felt burdened, heavy laden? Whatever it is. He's able to help because He's been there and He understands. He is not merely able to sympathize with us, He is able to empathize with us. So for those 30 years, Jesus was learning what it was to be human, and we rejoice in that. Now, as you know, all of the Gospels begin in a slightly different way. We said that Matthew and Luke begin with the story of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. They begin with these genealogies. Mark's Gospel begins much later than that, at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. John's gospel begins much earlier than that. It begins with the pre-existent logos, taking on human flesh and pitching his tent in our midst. But there is a point where even though they start in a slightly different way, there is one point very close to the beginning of each of the gospels where there is a point of convergence. And that point of convergence is what we read about today. The beginning of the Lord's ministry. It is the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, we don't hear a great deal about John the Baptist in the Scriptures. We hear a great deal more about the other disciples, Peter and James and John and Andrew and so forth. We don't hear a great deal about John the Baptist. He bursts onto the scene suddenly, and then he sort of disappears. And so oftentimes we don't think of him as often as we think of some of the other biblical figures. But I want you to understand John is one of the most significant figures. In fact, we could go so far as to say that next to Jesus himself, John was probably the most significant figure. And most of us probably think of the Apostle Paul in terms of the impact that he has had upon the world, the Greco-Roman world of his time and the world of our day. But we're going to see that Jesus actually held up John the Baptist as a great example. And we know that this was a turning point in the Christian story. Why? Well, keep your finger there in Matthew for just a minute and flip forward to Acts. Acts chapter 1. Those of you who went through the story on the, or the study on the book of Acts, you may remember this. Acts chapter 1. You'll recall that at the time of Jesus death, he had been betrayed by who? Judas Iscariot for 30 pieces of silver. And then Judas, having regretted his decision, at least for having betrayed an innocent man, whether or not he actually placed his faith in Christ, all the indicators are that he did not, 
but he obviously felt some sense of remorse for having betrayed an innocent man. You know what he did. He went out and he hanged himself. Well, what is being described here in Acts chapter 1 is the period after the resurrection. Jesus has died. He has now been resurrected. He is appearing to his disciples over the course of 40 days and preparing to send them out. But somebody has to fill the vacancy left by Judas. And so you read this in Acts chapter 1. Then they returned to Jerusalem, that is the disciples, from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Now this is not Judas Iscariot, this is another Judas. Judas the son of James. All of these were with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. So appropriate as you're eating your lunch. I'm sorry about that. But. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem that the field was called in their own language a keldama, that is, a field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So, Peter says, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day... When he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So we see the choosing of somebody to fill that vacancy in the apostolic band. But there were qualifications. What were the qualifications? Somebody who was a witness, we're told, to the resurrection. But somebody who had also, listen to this, verse 21, accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken from us, the ascension. So what Peter is saying is, the baptism of John marks the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, which is one of the reasons I think Mark is not particularly interested in the story of Jesus' miraculous birth. It's not that Mark was oblivious to it. It's just that as far as he is concerned, the rubber really hits the road when Jesus, who was born in a miraculous way, suddenly began his ministry, a ministry that would ultimately take him where? To Calvary and to the empty tomb. We celebrate the fact that God became flesh, my friends. We celebrate Christmas. And as I pointed out to you a couple of weeks ago when we were actually looking at the story of the nativity, you cannot go over the top with Christmas. Anybody that says, oh, well, Christmas has just become, you know, all this shopping and buying, and it's become so commercialized, and I just can't stand it. When I hear people grumble about that, I want to say, bah, humbug. <laughs> Christmas is a marvelous story. We should rejoice at that time of the year. We should pull out all the stops. It is the story of God coming among us, as I said, taking on flesh, our great high priest. But we must never forget that he took on flesh for what purpose? to die upon the cross. You do understand that if Jesus Christ had taken on human form and walked among us, but never gone to the cross, never died for our sins, was never raised again, do you realize you and I would be no better off than if he'd never come in the first place? The real significance of the manger is that it's the first step that ultimately leads to the cross and to the empty tomb. That's the significance of it all. And that part of the story really begins in earnest here 
with the baptism by John the Baptist in the wilderness. Now, who was John the Baptist? Because obviously he's significant, so significant that he's the point of convergence for all the gospel writers. Who was John the Baptist? Well, it's probably, you're reading it off the screen up there. He was, <laughs> he was the last of the prophets. We've just talked about the silent years of Jesus' life from the time of his birth until the beginning of his public ministry. But there were even longer silent years from the end of the Old Testament period to the beginning of the New Testament period. The last book of the Old Testament is the book of the prophet Malachi. And from the ending of that book until the arrival of Jesus Christ, there were 400 years. 400 years in which there was silence in the land of Israel. There was not a prophetic word spoken. When I say a prophetic word, what I mean is they did not hear a word from God. There was silence. Until what? A new prophet appeared on the scene. Appearing down there in the Judean wilderness, dressed in camel's hair, eating a strange diet of locusts and wild honey, and preaching a message of repentance. Why? Why should they repent? Because, he said, the kingdom of God had finally arrived. That's what all the prophets in the Old Testament had been looking for. That's what they had been prophesying, that a new king was going to come, great David's greater son, and he would bring this world with all of its brokenness, with all of its wickedness, with all of its sin, and he would reign in equity, and the kingdoms of this world would become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he would reign forever. And that's what people were looking for, but for 400 years, nothing happened. All of a sudden, this strange figure appears down there in the wilderness proclaiming that it had now arrived. He was the last of the prophets. Keep your finger there in Matthew and turn back to Isaiah for just a moment. Isaiah chapter 40. This is a, one of the great Advent hymns that we sing every year. It's my, one of my favorite Advent hymns. My two favorite ones are Lord Christ, um, excuse me, by John Wesley. Um, oh, it'll come to me in a minute. And then, if you think I'd know it, it's one of my favorites. Comfort, comfort ye my people is the other one. And uh, here's what the prophet Isaiah says, and this is what the hymn is taken from. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The people were to be comforted. Why? Because a Savior was coming. A Messiah would appear. And then you read in verse 3, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Are you familiar with those words? Every valley shall be exalted. What is that from? It's from Messiah by Handel. This is where it comes from. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. How does God speak? How did God speak in the Old Testament? Through the mouths of the prophets. So now the people of Israel are to be comforted. Why? Because her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. The kingdom of God has arrived. A voice is crying in the wilderness. Well, who was that voice? It was John the Baptist. So John is important as the last of the prophets. And as the last of the prophets, he is the hinge, you see. Between the Old Testament period, that period of the Old Covenant, and the New Testament period, the New Covenant. He is the hinge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He is also a great man. And we'll talk about why he's great. But Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, we'll get to this later on, he said, of all the men ever born of women, there was no one ever greater than John the Baptist. 
I mean, you can get high praise. But there's no higher praise than those words from the lips of Jesus. Of all the men born of women, there has never been anyone greater than what? John the Baptist. So as I said, he appears on the scene for a relatively brief period of time. We're much more familiar with Paul and his ministry. We're much more familiar with Peter and what Peter did and James and John. But John the Baptist, John the Baptist was the greatest of all those born of women. He was also a relative of the Lord's by blood. Now we don't know exactly how the relationship was. But we're told in Luke chapter 1 that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was a kinswoman of the mother of John the Baptist. Now, is there anybody out there reading from the King James Version of the Bible? You know, the one that God actually spoke. Um, Bill, you're, you're not reading from it. Okay. Well, in Luke chapter 1, verse 36, in the authorized version, the King James Version, we're told that they were cousins. But you have to understand that when that word cousin was used in the 17th century and in the 16th century, it was not used to describe people who were actually cousins. It was anybody that had some sort of familial relationship. So we really don't know how it was that John the Baptist and Jesus were related, but they were kin. Now, you South Carolinians understand this very well. That's one of the things I learned very early when I came down here to South Carolina, is you don't talk about anybody, because somebody is inevitably related to somebody else. <laughs> My first parish over on James Island, I, I met a lady, she was a delightful woman, and uh, I... You know, as I got to know the parish a little bit, I, I noticed that this woman was related to everybody. I said, you, you, are, you are related to everybody. And she said, yes, you have to be very careful about that. She said, we have a large family tree. She said, we don't have many branches, but we have a large family tree. Well, John the Baptist was somehow related to Jesus. So he is a remarkable person. He is the last of the Old Testament prophets. He is the greatest of all the men born of women, and he was a relative of Jesus. But for our purposes, the most important thing is not the man, but the message. You know, you find this to be true even when it comes to Jesus' ministry in a slightly different way. Not so much the man and the message, but the miracles. Did you ever notice that when Jesus went out and performed a miracle, whether it was giving sight to the blind or causing the lame to leap for joy, or even if it was raising somebody from the dead, did you ever notice that Jesus would then tell people, now don't go out and blab about this. Don't tell anybody about this. That was true with the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. Jesus raised this little girl who was dead and gave her back to her parents, and then he said to the parents, the mom and dad, now don't tell anybody about this. And then you go on to read that every time Jesus said that, the people went out and blabbed to everybody. Now, why do you think Jesus said, don't tell anybody about this? <clears throat> Theologians refer to this as the messianic secret. Why was Jesus keeping it a secret? Because he understood the very thing that you and I are prone to do, and that is to be impressed by the miraculous. We're fascinated by miraculous things. We want miracles. We want all those things that, that astound us. This is one of the reasons why I've always said that the summer blockbusters are not the movies that win an Academy Award. They make all of the money, but they're not really what you would call quality films. Some years ago, there came out a movie called Twister. Anybody see the movie Twister? The only redeeming thing in the entire film was the actress that starred in it, Helen Hunt. But aside from that, there was nothing about it. was about a bunch of people that chase tornadoes. And it made millions and millions of dollars because of the special effects. How many of you saw the movie Titanic when it came out years ago? Oh, lots of people saw that. I wanted to see that movie so bad. I said to Kristen, I said, we, I, I want to see that movie. She said, I don't want to see that movie. I said, why not? Everybody's seeing that movie. She said, we know how it ends. <laughs> and she says, it does not end well. 
And of course, it ended as you would expect. <laughs> but man, the special effects were amazing. You could feel the cold water. You could hear the creaking of that ship. You can feel the suspense and the anxiety and the fear that the people had. We are fascinated by the miraculous. I think Jesus told people not to tell anybody about it because that was the thing that would attract them. But that wasn't the thing that was going to save them. The thing that was going to save them were not the miracles. For every person that Jesus healed, what happened to those people? I've always said that the most pitiful person in all of Scripture is who? Lazarus. I mean, nobody wants to die once. That poor guy died twice. So people are impressed by the miraculous, but you see, Jesus wanted them to come to know him and to hear his message, and that's what has the power to save. Well, we could say a great deal about John the Baptist, the man, but it's the man's message that really matters. That is what is important. And that is why I think John appears relatively, for a relatively brief window of time in the scriptures, but his message, his message is a message we still need to hear today. It's a message in three parts. It contains a warning, it contains a promise, and it contains a demand. What's the warning? He says the kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now one of the things that you'll discover as you read through the Gospel of Matthew is that this theme of the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, is a major theme. And in fact, it's mentioned 32 times in just this gospel alone. And we find it constantly on the lips of Jesus. If you read through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would oftentimes say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? The kingdom of God. Or he would teach a parable and he would say, The kingdom of God may be compared to a man who went out and found a pearl of great value buried in a field. So Jesus was always talking about the kingdom of God. In fact, the very thing that got him executed, that got him into trouble with the Roman authorities, at the very end of his ministry was the fact that he claimed to be a what? A king. The people said, you've got to do something with him, Pilate. And Pilate said, I find no fault with the man. And they said, but he claims to be a king, and we have no king but Caesar. And sure enough, when Jesus was dying upon the cross, the placard above his head read what? This is the king of the Jews. So this notion of the kingdom of God is central. You can never really understand the New Testament message unless you understand this message of the kingdom of God. Now, some people have argued that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are two different things. But that's not actually the case. If you turn to Matthew chapter 19, verses 23 and 24, it becomes very clear that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are the same thing. Matthew actually uses them interchangeably. Now what is the kingdom of God? Simply put, the kingdom of God is that place where God reigns. Now you might say, well, God reigns ultimately over everything. That is true. But the way that Matthew uses it here, he means the kingdom of God is that place where God takes up residence and reigns in the hearts, the lives, and the minds of his people. That is the kingdom of God. That is the kingdom of heaven. And the king was always regarded as an absolute ruler in the ancient world. You know, we're fascinated by the British royal family. I don't know how many of you have watched the royal weddings. There have been a whole state of them recently. And we are fascinated by all of that pageantry. And we are I think it's strange for Americans to be so fascinated by the monarchy. We fought a revolution to get rid of the king, and now we're all fascinated. We're glued to the television. Every time one of them gets married, we're just fascinated by it. We, we love the fact that an American got to marry in to the British royal family. We think that sort of thing is fantastic. But you understand that the British monarchy is a constitutional monarchy. You do realize that the sovereign has very little power and authority. She represents, she's a great symbol, but she has no real power. She's a sovereign in name only. But do you understand that in the ancient world that was not the case? 
Kings did not run for re-election, just as God does not run for re-election. They were absolute rulers. They ruled by divine right, and their word was law. This was true in all ancient cultures. So when we say that the kingdom of God has arrived, that means that the king has arrived to reign in the hearts of his people and to do what? To distribute justice. So that was John's warning. The kingdom of God has arrived. God has come to be among his people. The king has come, and he has come to do what? To judge. To separate the sheep from the goats. To administer justice. So that was the warning. Here's the promise. The king who is coming is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He said, I baptize you with water, but there is one who is mightier than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, and he will deal with your sin. That's what John said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what Jesus came to do, to deal with our sin, to judge our wickedness, but to deal with it definitively, once and for all, and to baptize us with the Holy Spirit. To baptize us with the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be baptized with the Holy Spirit? Well, you'll hear some people say to be baptized with the Holy Spirit means you receive the gifts of the Spirit, the most important of which they'll suggest to you is the gift of tongues. That's what it means to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you may have a gift of tongues. I'm not one of those cessationists that said that sort of thing does not happen today. I think to say, well, God doesn't do that anymore is to put God in a box. But what I will tell you is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not the filling of the Holy Spirit which empowers people to speak in tongues or to do any other great miracle. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is when God comes and indwells us and transforms us and changes us. It's what elsewhere is described as the new birth. Let me put it to you this way. There are two Greek words that are used in the New Testament to describe baptism. One is the Greek word bapto, and the other one, which is closely related to it, is baptizo. Now, for the longest time, scholars didn't understand the difference between the two, because when the words were used, it always involved some sort of immersion. So what was the distinction? Why did the New Testament writers sometimes use bapto, and on another occasion use the word baptizo? Well, this is one of those strange quirks of history. About a hundred years ago, they discovered the recipe for making pickles by an early physician by the name of Nicander. And in that recipe for making pickles, Nicander used both of those words, bapto and baptizo. And here's what he said. When you are making pickles, you take the vegetable, whether it's a cucumber or whatever it is, and you baptize it in the boiling water. Now the Greek word that he used there for baptizing it in the boiling water was bapto. But then he said, you take it and you baptize it in the brine, in the vinegar solution. And the word that he used there was baptizo, the other word. And all of a sudden scholars began to understand the distinction between the two. The first baptism, the first immersion was what? A temporary immersion. You put it in the hot water and you keep it in there for a few seconds and you pull it out. But the second baptism, which was in the vinegar solution, the brine, was for an extended period of time. And what happened to the vegetable? A permanent change took place. It became permanently associated with the vinegar solution. So once it was pickled, it couldn't what? Be unpickled. What John was saying was the same thing. He was giving us a warning that the kingdom of God had arrived. He said the promise is that one who is mightier than I is coming, and he's coming for what purpose? Well, I'm baptizing you with water, a temporary baptism. You're repenting of your sins. 
but he's going to come and immerse you into the life of God the Holy Spirit in such a way that a permanent change is going to take place in your life. You are going to become permanently associated with the one who does the baptism. You are going to become Christ ones, little Christs. Permanently associated with the Savior. You understand that distinction? That's what John was saying. He's saying, you need to get ready, people. You, you cannot live the way you've been living. Oh, yes, for 400 years there's been silence in the land, but there's no silence anymore. The kingdom of God has come. The judge has arrived. He is mightier than I. I'm baptizing you with water, but he's going to come and he's going to baptize you with the power of God, the Holy Spirit, by whom all things were made. And a change is going to take place in your life. You'll never be the same again. And therefore, there was this demand. What was the demand? You need to repent. Now is the time. You need to repent. The word repent in Greek is metanoio. It literally means to have a change of mind. But it's clear from what John was teaching these people, and it's clear from their response. We're told all of Jerusalem and Judea went out to him, confessing their sins and lamenting of their sins. It's quite clear that it means more than just a change of mind. Now, those of you who were in Sunday school this past week, we talked a little bit about the prodigal son. Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. You know the story where this young man comes to his father and he demands his inheritance. Now, you understand that in the first century world, fathers were like kings. They ruled by divine right. And for a son to come and say, I want my inheritance now, was like saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Now, you didn't disgrace your father in that way. This father could have very easily thrown his son out, but he didn't. We're told he had compassion on his son. He gave him what he desired. You know, sometimes God will give you what you desire. Be careful what you pray for. Sometimes he'll give you what you want. Only so you can discover that's really not what you need. And so what he did is he gave his son his inheritance, and we're told that the boy went off and squandered all of that inheritance in loose living. That's a wonderful expression, loose living. And you know what it's like. We all know what it's like. Even if you've never been engaged in it, you've seen it. Loose living. And all of a sudden the money dried up, and when the money dried up, Lo and behold, all of his friends dried up. They disappeared as well. And the boy descended to a very low place, such a low place that we're told that he was what? Feeding pigs and longing to eat the pods that the pigs were feeding on. Now, that would not have been lost, the impact of that on a first century Jewish audience. Pigs, that's about as low as you can possibly go. And we're told at that point, the boy had a change of mind. He had a change of mind. He said, what am I doing here? This is crazy. I'd be better off as a slave in my father's house than feeding these pigs. I'm going back home to dad. I'll, I'll agree to be a slave. Now, some people think the boy came to his senses when he was there in the pigsty, and that's true. He had a change of mind. That's what the word means, metanoia. But you'll discover he didn't really have a change of heart. The only reason he's going home is what? Because he's better off as a slave than he is feeding these pigs. He doesn't have a change of heart, you see, until he goes home and he receives from his dad not what he deserves to be thrown out on his ear, but he receives from his father what he didn't deserve, which was what? Mercy. His father greeted him on the road, put a ring on his finger, a mantle about his shoulders, and killed the fatted calf. And that's when I believe the young man had not a change of mind, but a change of heart. Well, John the Baptist says people need to repent, but he doesn't simply mean to acknowledge your sins. It's not enough. That's one of the reasons why I love the Right One liturgy. For those of you who come to an Anglican church or attend St. Philip's, when we confess our sins, we say we acknowledge and what? Bewail our manifold sins and wickedness. It's not enough to acknowledge your sins, you see. The child that gets his hand caught in the cookie jar 
maybe sorry that he got caught, but he's not necessarily sorry that he did it. I remember this very distinctly when I was a kid. I think I've told you this story before. When I was a little boy, a teenager, I was um, told by my father that I was not to go to a certain place, but everybody else was. And so I sneaked out, and I went. And when I came home, my dad knew about it, and he was waiting. And he sat me down on the piano bench, and he lit into me like you wouldn't believe. I mean, he really let me have it. And by the time he was finished, I was what my kids call Amish. I mean, I could go nowhere, I could do no thing, I was on restriction, I was grounded, I might as well have been Amish. <laughs> and my dad's parting words to me were these. He said, now, you go into your room, and you sit in there, and you ask yourself this question, was it worth it? And I got up, head bowed, and I went in, and I shut the door, and he couldn't see me, and I turned around, and I said, worth it. And I meant it. <laughs> oh, I acknowledged my sin, but I wasn't bewailing it by any means. And it's just not acknowledging and bewailing. It's our what? What are the next words? Our manifold. That is to say, they're not just little white lies, little things, little peccadillas in our life. Manifold. They're multiple. They're innumerable. We acknowledge and we're sorry for our manifold sins and what? Wickedness. You know, people tend to think, well, we're wicked because we sin. That's not what the prayer book teaches. It's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we sin because we're wicked, not the other way around. And so John the Baptist says that's what we need to do. We need to have a change of mind that leads to a change of life. Sunday school teacher was once teaching his class about repentance, and he asked, what does repentance mean? And one little boy raised his hand and it says, it means to be sorry for your sin. Little girl sitting next to him said, no, it means to be sorry enough to quit. That's what it means to repent, you see doesn't mean simply to be sorry. It means to be sorry enough to quit. This is what Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What did he mean? Just mourning? The fact that life doesn't always give us what we want? No. He means mourning for our sins. If we are truly sorry for our sins, we will ultimately be comforted. For whoever confesses their sins, God is faithful and just what? to forgive them their sins and to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. It doesn't mean simply to be sorry, my friends. It means to be sorry enough to quit. This is what made John the Baptist the greatest man who ever lived because he was the first one to preach like that. To tell the people that the kingdom of God had come, that the king had arrived, one who was mightier, the one who would baptize people with the power of the Holy Spirit, give them a whole new life, and because he had come, and because that time had arrived, it was time for people to do what? It was time for people to repent. Let me tell you something. That is a message the world still needs to hear today. We need to hear that the kingdom of God has arrived. We need to understand that Jesus Christ is the ultimate king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And he wants to fill us with his Holy Spirit and make us a whole new creation so that the old passes away and something new is born. And in order for that to happen, we need to be a people who repent, who change our lives, who acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness and seek his grace, his mercy, and his forgiveness. Have you ever done that? You know, there are many people out there who are willing to acknowledge the fact that they're sinners in an academic sense. In fact, I would be willing to bet this morning, this afternoon, if I were to say to you, how many of you acknowledge the fact that you're sinners? Let's see a show of hands. How many of you admit that you're sinners? Now, I'm not going to ask this next question with a show of hands. How many of us are really, really sorry enough to quit our sins? 
See, that's what we struggle with, isn't it? Day in and day out. And that teaches us that repentance is not a one-time thing. There is a sense in which there's a one-time turning away from an old life to a new life, but it also means that repentance is a daily thing. It is a daily thing. It is a daily repentance. You want to fall in love with Jesus Christ? I had somebody in my office just yesterday who was really struggling with something. And I think she came seeking a magic answer. I think what she wanted me was to give her a text from Scripture that would make everything okay. And I told her that's not the way it works because what we're really talking about is what? A relationship with God. And she admitted. She admitted to me. She said, I'll be honest with you. I, don't, I, I hear that talk about a personal relationship with God. She said, I don't think I have it. She says, I think I know about God, but I don't think I know God personally. And she said, I would like to have that kind of a relationship. We want that kind of a relationship with God. If we want that kind of a relationship with God, then we need to acknowledge our sin. Because the only way to have an intimate relationship with God is to love God. And the only way we can love God is if we see who He really is and we see who we really are. If you really want to have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, and in having that relationship with Jesus Christ, have the peace of God which passes human understanding, then let this be your prayer today. Say, Lord, reveal to me my sin for what it really is. Not in an academic sense, not as I know I've messed up today, Lord, and I'm sorry about that. But reveal to me my sins for what they really are. My envy. My envy of those who are more attractive or better off than I am. My jealousy. My anger. My frustration. My bitterness. My gossip. Oftentimes it's things we do with our tongue. It's, it's no mistake that the New Testament describes the tongue as a small spark that causes a huge fire. When I preached on this the last time, I, I said it's like an atom. You know, the atom is a very small thing, but when we split it, it causes a huge explosion. Tongues can be small things, the smallest member of your body, but it can cause so much destruction. Ask God to reveal those things in your own life. And it's not just the things you do, it's the things you think. There's a reason why we begin the liturgy with what is known as the collect for purity. Almighty God, into whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom what? No secrets are hid. Oh, how many of you have secrets? Oh, you're lying out there already. We all have secrets, things that we don't even reveal, thoughts that we don't even reveal to our spouse, but God knows them. And ask him to reveal those things to you. And the more he reveals them to you, the more you will begin to despair for your own salvation. But when you begin to despair for your own salvation, that's when you can rejoice that what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John the Baptist said. That's so great about John the Baptist was that he not only diagnosed the problem, repent, repent of your sins for the kingdom of God is at hand, but he also diagnosed the problem, but he also gave us a cure. He said, behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. My favorite hymn, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Evangel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains, and the Holy Spirit comes to indwell them, and they become permanently associated with Jesus Christ. The old passes away, the new comes, and we are new creations, little Christ. The peace of God, which passes human understanding, guards your heart and your mind for eternity. Now, that's good news. That was the message of John the Baptist. It's a message that we need to hear, but it's also a message we need to proclaim. You may be thinking to yourself, well, the world is a different place than it was when I was growing up. You're right. But the human condition is just the same. It's not that sin is greater today than it was in your day. It isn't. There may be more opportunities to sin today than there were in your day. But the human condition is the same. And it needs the same message. 
It needs a warning. It needs a promise. And it needs a call to repentance. Let's follow in the footsteps of John the Baptist. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for John. He appears so briefly on the scene. We're so grateful for his ministry. We can see why Jesus said, of all the men born of women, there was no one greater than John the Baptist because he preached this message without fear. The religious leaders came out to him and they were cruel. And ultimately, John forfeited his own life. But we know, Lord, that he was fearless in his faithfulness. We pray that you would grant us the grace to do the same thing, to hear his message, to appropriate it for our lives, and to go out and proclaim it to the world, that all may come to know him who is the king. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, thank you. knows that. You can cast your cares on him because he cares for you. I love John. I love my favorite one.